Hello and welcome to this week's Property Matters, the show that brings global trends to an Irish audience to shape your knowledge of the industry. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host today is myself, Carol Tallon, and we'll just take a quick look at some of the big stories from the week. First of all, according to the Irish Independent this week, annual mortgage switch savings have now reached €3,400 per year, meaning that the home loans gap has now widened by almost €900 in the last year. Also, there's been a spike in planning permissions for apartments, according to new figures from the CSO. The level of planning permissions granted for apartments jumped by more than 150% to almost 4,700 in the second quarter of the year. This increase comes on the back of an overhaul to, to apartment planning guidelines in March 2018, which obviously made it more economic for builders to, to build. Also, planning permissions were granted for a total of 4,936 houses during the same period, representing a 156% increase in apartments, but 0.3% decrease in house units. Um, also, German asset manager Wealthcourt reported to beat off rivals to clinch a deal on the Reflector building, which hit the market earlier this year, asking £155 million. We'll bring more on that when we have it. Uh, Dublin City Council is planning to open Dublin libraries 14 hours a day, 365 days a year with a new automated system. We look forward to that. Finally, an independent review is to get underway into the model of construction favoured by the Department of Education for new houses, following controversy over the structural safety of dozens of new buildings. Minister for Education Joe McHugh said... The review would examine the experiences of other countries that are using the department's design and build model of school construction, which is a fast, a fast-tracked um, construction model that involves prefabrication of some materials off-site. This review rises from a commitment given by Minister McHugh after structural assessments last year raised concerns over the safety of dozens of schools constructed by Western building systems. This international review is likely to be a precursor to a wider independent review of the department's design and build programme across the state. So I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that. So our first guest in studio today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Alan Hoare, founding director of CETA, the Construction IT Alliance. Alan, you're very welcome. Thank you, Carol. Delighted to be here. So thank you again. What is CETA exactly, the Construction IT Alliance? Well, I suppose it's 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 a network, it's a community, it's a group of people who have a particular interest in in digital, in construction. It crosses all boundaries of the profession, all stakeholders, whether it's clients, designers, contractors, um, educators, students, um, you know, policymakers. So really, the whole the whole gambit, really, you know. So the whole, I suppose, the the concept lies under the the word alliance. Yeah, and uh, we're actually celebrating twenty years this year. Which is phenomenal because Absolutely. I don't know were people aware of the drive to um, to the drive for digital in construction twenty years ago. Yeah, well, actually, if we go back to nineteen ninety nine when it all started, I suppose it was known at that time as the sort of the dot com boom era. And actually, in DIT Bolt Street as it was then, obviously now it's TU Dublin. Um, we had a number of of, of uh, innovations there, and one of them was a company called Build Online, which which actually spun out of DIT, became very successful, and within four years, it uh, it was really a, a product that was used right across the world. And at that time, there was a group of academics, myself, there was Louis Gunnigan, who's now based up in Grange Gorman, and uh, Ken Thomas and Waterford had this idea of coming together forming an alliance of, 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 of organisations that looked at this. At the time, I suppose, we were doing some research into the space. And there was a similar initiative in the United Kingdom called the Construction IT Centre in the University of Salford. And at the time, I remember our director, John Ratcliffe, 
in the college. He encouraged us to, you know, to partake in the in the, in the UK initiative and the UK network. And as a result of that, really, we formed our own. So, a lot of companies like, well, formerly I suppose Bruce Shaw, John Siskinson, and a number of other large contractors, you know, helped us make the alliance happen. And in on the nineteenth of September, uh, you know, not nineteen ninety nine, we had our first event. Oh, so you're uh, actually so coming up to your twenty year anniversary. Absolutely, twenty. It was all over LinkedIn this week. So. Uh, 20 years absolutely and we've seen a lot of change then mm-hmm. but one of the things is there's a huge amount of innovation going on in construction projects right across uh, right across Ireland Yeah I, I, I suppose um, my mind is blown that it, this has been going on for 20 years because we look at some of the innovation that's happening now and I suppose like every generation we like to think that we invented innovation <laughs> and, and of course of course that's not the reality so um, yes there's been a lot of change over that 20 years um, but Given the marketplace at the time in in um, 1999, mm. there's been obviously extreme highs, extreme lows. So where, how did uh, CETA, how, how did you help your members through that period? Well, well I suppose, it, it, uh, to be honest, as well, like any organisation, it starts as a seed, as an idea. In, in this instance, it was a research project. So mm. back in 99, we had one major event a year. We used to run events maybe in May and, and November each year. And in fairness to the college, I suppose they, at the time, they were supporting us and, and encouraging us and mm-hmm. we were people were coming to the college. But in 2005, uh, we became incorporated because at that time, once the network had grown, it's now grown to an excess of 300 subscribing members. At, at that time, we started to bid for, for research funding. We started to, to, to run larger events. And also, uh, we, need, we needed to, call us to sort of, from a legal perspective, be more, more, more self-sustaining. So at that stage, we exited from the college and we became a, a company not-for-profit. Uh, and, uh, but the one thing that, that we've seen over the years is that, though I suppose the one thing Irish building is, is famous for is building great buildings, whether it's across the world, in the UK, and indeed in Ireland. Uh, and I think now more than ever, the alliance, the idea of the alliance and the idea of having an independent voice that looks sort of um, from, a, from an independent perspective on the range of technologies available, having that sort of um, view independently is, is, is really what the industry is looking for, that independent advice, that support. That, that we can give them through okay. our events, through our education programs and through our research. And I, I suppose I'm thinking back to um, at the time in the origins and certainly in the early, you know, even in the first decade, there wasn't the same proliferation of social media and online digital tools and online resources. So uh, were you accessing Irish resources? Were you looking at what was happening, best practice overseas? Where were you getting? Well, I suppose the predominant focus back then was propensity for the industry to, I suppose, one people that work in the industry would see it as a very fragmented industry. Mm. You know, most contracts are, are, are you know, on, on different sites, different companies are working together. So it's a very challenging industry to digitise, unlike, say, the manufacturing industry. But back then, I suppose, the focus was a lot more on, I suppose, removing the, the paperwork, paper-based processes from it. Yeah. So I suppose we had things like e-commerce uh, uh, coming coming to the fore and so on and so forth. Uh, but now, I suppose, now we're talking more about using, you know, intelligent models. We're looking, we're, we're looking, we're looking using IoT you know, all sorts of other range of technologies. I suppose even blockchain now will be a technology that's been looked at. Particularly in, for construction contracts, yeah. yeah. So I suppose it's been organic, yeah. if, that's, if that's the right word, as, we've, as we move through those two, 
those two decades. Um, but now we can see, you know, a lot of off-site manufacturing. And of course, that requires sophisticated design tools in the designing buildings, coordinating those buildings. And of course, the concept today of a digital twin that, you know, in many industries, whether it's the automotive industry, the aeronautical industry, or even the general manufacturing industry, products are generally built digitally first. And they're stress tested in the design house before they go to site. And that's really where, we need, where, where, where the next stage is. Now, before we go to site, the time is taken to design buildings correctly and to coordinate them correctly so we don't have the delay and disruption that we maybe see on certain projects, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that are currently running. Right. And then in terms of benchmarking where where the Irish industry is, do we have any idea on a global scale where Ireland sits in terms of innovation and embracing digital technologies? Well, I know that the Department of Public Expenditure Reform recently issued a report called the Build Report, which um, uh, you know really placed Ireland, uh, uh, you know, lower down in the in the pecking order from the point of view of our, our productivity levels in construction. And I know the government and the Department have commissioned now a report on. Mm-hmm. on that to identify the causes for the relatively poor productivity levels in construction and what policies and procedures could be put in place to support that. So the sort of things they're talking about is maybe a new centre of excellence for construction. Mm-hmm. I suppose since, for example, on Forage Perpetual was closed a number of years ago, we don't have a, a research centre for the industry and that's something that most of the industries have. Yes. So we need that. Uh, we also need... Um, uh, we had recent in recent years we had a new roadmap published for digital transition for the for for the Irish construction industry that was published in 2017. But we haven't seen that action followed through. But I'd be yeah. confident that that will come. Actually, uh, you might just take a few moments to talk us through that because it's something we've referenced a few times here on the show uh, when we've had mm. guests in and we mm. have looked back at that document but you might just explain for our audience what exactly that well, is. Well, I, I was involved as the principal researcher on the BIM Innovation Capability Programme for Ireland. We were very fortunate that TU Dublin were, were, were successful in, 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 in that bid. So, it's a very simplistic approach we took. We looked right across the world at, at 27 jurisdictions actually and what they were doing in in, in in other countries in this space. And I suppose we naturally kind of gravitated towards the Commonwealth countries, the UK, because that's where our industry kind of yeah. stemmed from, I suppose, how we organise ourselves. But four, four very simple pillars. And you could actually apply this to any business working in the built environment, engineering sector. Number one, for a company to be successful in working with digital, they need leadership. They need the leadership piece. They need someone to drive the digital agenda within the business. Second thing is they need to educate their people. So training education is very important. The third pillar was be, would be standards. For example, uh, we're all aware of ISO. And of course, in the last uh, 12 months or so, ISO have published a new uh, international standard for information management for construction. So companies uh, now need to become certified in ISO 19650. And actually, NSAI are, are, are rolling out their support program for companies to get that certification. So leadership, education, standards, and above all, procurement. So if you're procuring, if you're a government agency and you're procuring, you, you mentioned about the report uh, mentioned actually uh, uh, by the Department of Education and Science. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know they have particular interest in design and build as a preferred procurement option for, for future schools. Um, but also uh, procuring digitally. Even today now, I was with a major contractor early this morning and they were talking about their problem with the paperwork system 
and even getting their purchase orders and delivery notes and their invoices to match, it's a real problem. So what they need to try and do there is is completely automate that process with their larger suppliers. So mm-hmm. four pillars, any company could apply to their business. Okay. That makes infinite sense. And just for anybody listening in that wants to get more information on that, do you have details on your website? Absolutely, we have details on the on 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 the, on the website. Yes, yeah. Great, thank you. Yeah. The the website is um, cita.ie. I can forward that. Perfect. Cita.ie for anybody who wants to just delve a little bit deeper into that. Yeah. And you mentioned there, um, uh, Bim, and I know that there's a big event coming up. Yes, we're, we're having, I suppose we all look back at 2013 when that great initiative of the government to have the gathering. Mm-hmm. The idea of sort of, I suppose, encouraging diaspora to come home and, and to, 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 to celebrate their, their, I suppose, their nationhood. And at that time, one of, my, one of our directors, Ralph Montague, who would be very vocal in this space, came up with the idea of the BIM gathering. So our first BIM gathering was in 2013 in, in, in the Guinness Storehouse. It was a wonderful success. We had 15, 17, and now we're in 19. I suppose what's different about 2019 this year is for the first time we're moving the event from Dublin to Galway. Why is that? Uh, well, mainly because I'm from Galway. But besides that, <laughs> the, the, that's uh, <laughs> reason. That's reason enough. <laughs> besides that, uh, I suppose it's a strategy the Alliance have in that um, there's. I suppose we. One of the things that the roadmap talks about, particularly in the leadership um, module, is the need for a network of regions, uh, regional activities in the space. So we actually have seven regions in Ireland. Look right down the western coast and the south. So the idea would be to try and, uh, uh, you know, and we have champions. I spoke to one of our Western champions only a few hours ago uh, uh, about the event. And, uh, you know, so we have 260 people registered, which is great. So what we're going to be hearing, I suppose, at the gathering is local messages, but also international messages. So we have um, local TD, I suppose, Sean Canning will be opening the conference. And we're also hearing from RPS Group. Jerry Carty will be will be giving an opening address, and we'll also have some international speakers. We have Jan Saar from the Estonian government. The Estonian government, I suppose, would be one of the leaders in digital okay. uh, uh, across the world. They're well known uh, and would be very highly ranked as 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 a nation of of digital native, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, 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 people, and they'll be presenting their new digital platform for to support their construction industry. And of course, that's so timely for Ireland because we also uh, have uh, are looking at developing the same platform here. So How would about, that platform work? Well, the, the, the big issue with, I suppose, trying to get, um, I suppose, if we talk about building information modelling, what is it? I suppose it's a new way of designing, coordinating, managing construction projects using model information instead of flat 2D design information. So what you do is you, you design uh, in uh, a model, and then you coordinate it so that everything works works on works on site. So, if you can imagine, if you want to try and get a really, uh, I suppose, smart uh, uh, government who are procuring and building, you know, whether it's infrastructure, schools, whatever, they need to also have leaders. They need to educate their people within the in the government, and and also they need to use international standards. So the idea that would there would be a platform for state agencies that they could literally enter this platform and they could be able to download the various templates, guidelines and so on. 
that for platform procurement. for for well for procurement or for design. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you take this, this, the situation of of of, the, of a school project, you could well have a generic BIM, um, temp, a, a generic BIM. Uh, exemplar project built on the platform so fully compliant with the building regulations NZEB and all that and that could be a guide that the designers within that organisation could could look at as a reference point you know? okay so so really it, it's also it, it's also a, a, a way of, of of encouraging I suppose the designers the, the constructors who work for those government agencies to I suppose to coordinate and, and, and transfer data in a particular way Okay, is BIM mandatory on PPP projects in Ireland? Uh, it, it, it is. It has been mandated on a number of projects in Ireland. For example, our own project in Grange Gorman. Mm-hmm. The, the, but that's the, a huge project. That that would be a huge project, and of course, with there's been a number of school school bundle projects that where where where, mm-hmm. where it's being used. There is a strategy for um, mandating BIM in the public sector that has been sort of stratified and developed by the Office of Government Procurement and the intention is to roll that out. Okay. Uh, is that the situation in the UK? No, the UK is slightly different. The UK, I suppose, it would be fair to say that the UK are the real innovators here. Despite Brexit, they, they have really um, taken a leadership role in this space. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the first country to mandate BIM globally and uh, in 2016... On capital-funded projects, but there was it was it was kind of somewhat restricted on on, on the type of projects. But um, they would have had a UK BIM task group, and really it was down to the fact that there was a vision that uh, that the government of, of the UK saw at that time. They funded a, a UK BIM task group. They implemented the roadmap, or sorry, mm-hmm. the, the 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 mandate, and now really they're starting to see the benefits of that. Okay, but I it, that didn't come easy. I do recall reading. I think it was a 2015 or 2016 report by Mark Farmer of Cast yes, Consultancy. Yes. Modernize or die. Yes. There was a very, um, uh, there was a very stark call to innovation for the industry. There has Ireland has the Irish industry gotten that yet? I think the one thing about no, I mean, if you were to ask me, um, you know, to give you a percentage of the industry that are using BIM, I'd say it's it's quite it's quite a, a low level. Obviously, the tier one companies are getting on with it, and actually, companies like, for example, Multiplex, who will be speaking now next week in in Galway, they have a model first approach. Mm-hmm. I would suggest that perhaps some of our larger tier one contractors, without naming them, will also have a tier uh, will will also work from a model a model a first approach because they see the benefits themselves so even on a simplistic level if they're if they're building on a traditional architect led project mm-hmm. they might well take the, the the view you know what we will actually create this information ourselves digitally and we will um so we can coordinate it much more efficiently on 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 site of course the real benefit comes when the model has a contractual uh, basis and it was that it's a contractual requirement and not only does the contractor have to build but also they have to hand over an asset rich model that the client can use then for facility management purposes that's the real benefit the downstream benefit and I presume all of this is going to be discussed and maybe we can dive a little bit deeper into it at the gathering yes to an extent I mean I suppose the theme each of the gatherings has a particular theme the theme for this year is is delivering better project 
outcomes. So better project outcomes would be on time, on budget, and to the quality that's required. So that's there. That's the kind of the, the brief that we gave all our speakers. So our, both our keynote speakers and the other 48 speakers that will be at the event have that brief uh, to, 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 to work with, you know. Very good. Uh, and I understand you have 260 attendees confirmed. 260 confirmed. Have oh. you spaces left for people who Absolutely. are late to the party? Absolutely. Please come along. And actually, we'd love to see more students come along. We have, I think, we have a special rate for the, for the students. And, uh, you know, it's a real time to, to, to see the future and, and what's ahead of us in our industry. That's a great point. Thank you so much. Where can people find information on the event? On the www.cita.ie website and also we're on all social media platforms. That's great. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Alan Hoare, founding director of CETA. Thank you so much for being with us today. Stay tuned after the break and we'll be joined by Arthur O'Brien, managing director of C&W O'Brien Architects and Barry Ward, Fine Gael, local councillor with Dunleary, Rathdown County Council. Broadcasting from the Dundrum Town Centre, this is Dublin South FM. Hi folks, it's Paddy Cunningham here letting you know that you can join me each Tuesday evening for a brand new country music show right here on Dublin South FM. Each Tuesday from 8pm, Country Roads is going to bring you the best in Irish and American country music, looking at that week's country chart and a featured artist. So why not join me each Tuesday evening from 8pm right here on Dublin South FM for Country Roads. The best in Irish and American country music on Dublin South FM with Paddy Cunningham. Greeting 60s fans, it's Jim and Isabel here. Do you remember Opal Fruits, the Rainbow Cafe or the Poolsman? Did you listen to the latest pop record on Radio Caroline or Radio Luxembourg? Well, whether the answer is yes or no, Echoes of the Jukebox puts you right at the heart of the sights and the sounds of the 60s. Armed with a stack of singles, we invite you to join us on Echoes of the Jukebox right here on Dublin South FM, Wednesdays 2 to 3. The Wurlitzer's humming. We'll see you there, gang. Sweet, sweet memories you gave. Hello, Martha Lynham here. Why not tune into Memory Lane, a programme for our senior citizens every Tuesday at four? Or listen back on the podcast section of the Dublin South FM website. We'll be taking a nostalgic trip down Memory Lane with a mix of history, trivia, some golden oldie music and a little bit of banter. That's Memory Lane, Tuesdays at four on Dublin South FM. Dublin South FM Okay, welcome back to Property Matters here on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com As mentioned before the break, in studio with us now we have Arthur O'Brien, Managing Director of C&W O'Brien Architects and Barry Ward, Fine Gael, Local Councillor of Dunleary Rathdown County Council. Gentlemen, you're very welcome. Thank you, Carol. So, Today, we we decided to do something a little bit different. Generally, we bring our guests in one at a time. Um, but today, I wanted to have a conversation maybe about what's happening in terms of planning. There's been a lot of criticism. Uh, you might have heard earlier on in the break that there's a record number of planning approvals granted for apartments. Uh, approvals are up in the second quarter of this year, up 156%. 
So I think this is a number of them came under the fast track system, which has been quite controversial for some of the local councillors. Mm-hmm. So, Barry, we might start with you and talk. You've you've shared some views about um, the fast track process and you might tell us yeah, a little bit about I'm, that. Yeah, I mean, Carol, I'm, I'm not in favour of it, to be honest with you. I understand why it's happened. And in fairness to the minister and the department, they are looking to get as many approvals done, exactly as you see in the paper now, with a view to getting uh, boots on site, buildings built, homes completed so that people can move into them. And that's understandable in the context that we're aware of, of of the housing crisis. However, the problem that I have with it is twofold. Firstly, it removes any democratic element from the planning process. Now, since the year 2000, when the Planning and Development Act passed, planning powers have been removed from councillors. So we have no say whatsoever in them anyway. However, the planners who work for the council are still accountable to us. And we can still ask questions. We still set the parameters within the development plan, etc. Now you have a situation where certain types of development above a certain size uh, go directly to onboard Pernola. So they bypass so are these the, the strategic housing or uh, exactly. 100, SHDs, 100 units? More than 100 plus. units, yeah. Which has the unintended byproduct of a situation where I understand developers are taking what had been maybe 60 apartments that were two beds, I say, and making them all into one bed so that they get over that threshold. Now, I don't have any specific examples of that, but I'm told that's happening. But the the upshot of it is that the council is totally bypassed. So you no know longer have a situation where the local knowledge that comes with a planner in Dunyrath Down, who might know the site or who would certainly visit the site, all of that is lost. And that application goes directly to onboard Panola. Uh, so you have this central body, and it's another centralisation of power, which I'm opposed to, which hasn't got the local knowledge, which is making the decision. And I think that's a retrograde step. I don't believe it significantly speeds up the process. And I, I think it loses something by virtue of the fact that it doesn't have that democratic element locally or the, the knowledge locally and then there's also issues with with appeals for example there isn't an appeal mechanism from on board planola there is essentially you can judicially review it to the high court if there's a problem with the way the decision was made but normally in the way most people are familiar with you make your application to the local authority the local authority grants or refuses and if somebody has a problem with the with the decision made as opposed to the manner in which the decision was made it can be appealed to on board planola but the second issue is that the on board planola now is overrun they don't have the resources to deal with the number of applications they have to deal with which is causing a delay in the in the rendering of decisions and that's also problematic for people who want to build houses and get into them okay and i'm sure any delays would be problematic um arthur your your firm i'm sure are dealing with a large number of planning applications what's your experience of the process I, I think the process is 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 good. It's 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 a welcome change in in terms of the time frame that it takes to get an application through. I, I don't think it's fair to say that it that it usurps the democratic democratic process. I mean the 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 zoning plans and the development plans are, are uh, created by the local authorities and voted on by the the, the local councils and, and and there's a lot of public consultation in that process and then there's a a guideline in terms of development plan of of what we can and can't do. There's certainly a mix of of one twos and three bedrooms set out clearly in in a lot of the development plans, if not all the development plans, and and that's what we have to abide by. And uh, you know when we're building apartments. Uh, it's quite specific about the the, the uh, number of one, twos, and three beds. Um, I, I think what you might be referring to is some of the relaxations for some of the different types of of, of housing stock that we've got now, residential stock, um, and, and and that's um, if people are living permanently in a house, uh, the standards should be higher. If people are, are not living permanently in a house, then I think applying 
long-term residential standards is, um, I, I think, needs to be considered more. And, and I think that's what, what's, what's happening. Um, so I, I don't see that... that uh, and in that process, we, we have to go to the local planners first. That's that's the first step in the in the, in the SHD process. We go, we visit them, we 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 uh, state our case. We talk about our units, our development, our design, uh, and we take on board their opinion. And sometimes we go back several times to the local authority, and uh, before we go into the to onboard Panola. Um, and generally, we like to go forward with a with a positive result from from the local authority before we go to onboard Planola. So, I, I'm not sure that the dem- democratic process has been usurped in, in any way whatsoever. Um, you know, I I, I I I certainly am aware of that feeling of of of, of that happening in in, uh, but I, I'm not sure it's well. Totally the first aspect of that, if I if I may, is I can't see where the democracy is in going to a centralised body that has no recourse and is in no way accountable to local communities. So when I say that the local democracy is taken out of it, as I say, a planner who works for Dunleary Rathdown County Council is obliged to answer a question from me in the council if I ask it. Nobody from onboard Planona knows who I am. And if I ring up, I'm the same as anybody on the street. So I have none of that power of being an elected person with onboard Planola. But Arthur makes the point about there being very strict guidelines. And there are. And he says there's a lot of public consultation around the formation of, of county development plans. And he's right, there is. But you now have a situation where onboard Planola does not have to have regard to that. They can, un- they can override the provisions, and they have. They can override the provisions of county development plans in all areas except zoning. So height strategies and densities and things like that can be overridden by onboard Planola with these big applications. That's a problem. And exactly the point you make, Arthur, is that so much effort goes into the formation of these plans. There is so much consultation and they're so carefully balanced to reflect what's needed. Um, The fact that onboard Planola can just ignore them is hugely problematic. And if I may, on one other point, Arthur refers to long-term living. We have to get used to the fact that apartments must become long-term living if we are to deal with the density issue of housing in Dublin. And I'm somebody who lived in Paris for a long time and and worked and, and, and studied there apartment living in Paris which is much more hab- much more palatable than it is here is very much aimed at long term living and there are lots of very old buildings there but within a three bedroom apartment for example you will have two living rooms you will have two living spaces it's very yeah. difficult to bring up a family in a three bedroom apartment if there's one living room and parents any parents listening will know how difficult that would be so we have to move away from this model of small pokey apartments where people live for a few years and recognise that they must become family dwellings. Yeah, and actually, Barry, I completely agree with you that we do need to reconcile ourselves that um, in the future people will be living uh, long term in apartments. But is that not all the more reason why we need to differentiate between our apartment stock so that we're not using the same stock for rental as we are for long term purchase? Because actually what I need if I have a three, uh, if I have a three children family is different to what I'd need when I'm a young professional yeah. and possibly sharing a room. So, so you is have that a smaller apartment if you're if you if you're a, a single individual or, or yeah. two people sharing an apartment, you can have a smaller apartment. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is that if you there are I don't know and I probably don't know as well as Arthur certainly what the the existing stock of apartments is around Dublin. But I do not know any three bedroom apartments that are not kind of expensive penthouses. Mm-hmm. Three bedroom apartments in which you could raise a family. 
uh, with that come with a bit of outdoor space, maybe on a balcony or a roof garden or things like that. I live in an apartment. I live in a one-bedroom apartment. It's not something, I mean, a couple could live there, but that's about the size of it. But the point I'm making is that, that we shouldn't be differentiating between, uh, between let's say, rental stock and, and permanent stock, because otherwise you end up with whole buildings that are just rented apartments, and that creates its own problems of intransigence and, and, uh, and other uh, people who are not there for any with any permanence, and therefore they don't invest in their community or the property or anything like that. Maybe I've misunderstood yeah. what you said. But no, no, I will actually, yeah. um, I no, you haven't misunderstood what I said. I, I actually do think that we do need to differentiate between our stock. I do think there should be different stock for uh, long-term and short-term use for rental and for ownership. And I say that having lived in, in France and in Spain and used apartments that were designed for families and for living. And you're absolutely right. We don't have three bed apartments here. And I think that going forward, the design of apartments needs to change. But I see that as being very clearly designated that you would have apartments that are suitable for rental and apartments that are suitable for lifestyle. But what I what I you mentioned there about in uh, the the short term nature of lettings, actually, I think tenure is a problem with our rental mm. system. I it do is. think that we should be doing long term mm. rent. So actually, I do think that people should be able to access uh, three, four, five year mm. leases. And perhaps we need to consider yeah. terms longer yeah. than that. There is a double edged sword element mm-hmm. to that because we have to understand as well that if, uh, and I 100% agree with you, we need to expand the rights of tenants in order mm-hmm. to ensure that people have security of tenure of apartments. But comes come the, with that comes other responsibilities that will go on to tenants. And for example, the, the, the way the, the Residential Tenancies Board works at the moment is very much pro-tenant and that's fine, but it makes it very unattractive for anybody to invest in being a commercial landlord. Now, there are companies doing it here, but um, the reality is that we would have to modify the way we, we deal with disputes between landlords and tenants, properly do that rather than having an agency that appears to be somewhat one-sided. Oh, I agree. We ha- I don't think we've ever had anybody on the show um, in the last nine or ten months that we're running. I don't think we've ever had anybody um, on the show that hasn't put forward that view that um, the Residential Tenancies Board still there is the perception that it is pro-tenancy, even though obviously they would reject that. Um, but again, that's almost making the argument why we're losing some of our private landlords mm. and institutional landlords are, take, are taking their place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I, I don't disagree with anything Barry said, and I, I think yeah. uh, everything is 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 right in what you're saying. But I, I think our housing stock now, the the, the residential has become a much broader uh, definition of, of housing stock now. We everything from hotels to apart hotels to student housing uh, to private rental units um, to um, Say co-living. Co-living, I'm going to say co-living. Uh, co-living, shared living, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, right down to apartments. And and there are, I suppose co-living is our new one. And I, let's not get go too, too much into that. It's a that. controversial yeah, one. Yeah, we, I, mean, I can tell you all about that. It's, been, <laughs> it's, it's fun. But the um, for our apartments, we have very strict guidelines on size. And, and the new apartment guidelines that, that are national guidelines are excellent. Excellent. And they've taken us from what we had in the Celtic Tiger, which were the little boxes, and we tried to squeeze them all in into very livable units with very strict dimensions for size of kitchen, size of bedrooms, and very strict dimensions for uh, for storage, which is what every family needs. So I've got mm-hmm. five kids. I know all about storage. and I, you know, So it's, it's um, I think all of that's fantastic. And, and I think there are 
lots of substandard apartments uh, in town, and they're, they're historical. I think all of the new apartments, and by that I mean pure apartments, and I have to go back to that big broad definition of residential, you know, on, 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 on the apartment side where it's what I call long-term living. If I'm going to live in that apartment, absolutely I need big, decent, generous apartments where I can rear a family. And, and we have standards for that. Uh, and, and the development plan sets out if I'm building apartments uh, that I have to have exact standards for two, three, one, one, two and three bedroom units, uh, exact storage, open space, personal space, personal private open space. Uh, and they're, they're, they're quite decent and generous. And, and, I, and I think they, they do work. Um, and, they, and you can raise a family in those buildings. And, and now we're going beyond that and putting amenity spaces into those buildings, which is beyond the kind of um, you know fixed open space, more into kind of social spaces. And that's those are lessons we're learning from Europe. And some of the best apartments I, I've seen are, are in South America, where they all live in apartments. And you know I've been on terraces with barbecues and um, you know fantastic apartments that that a family would love to live in. And w- I think we're getting closer to that model in our pure apartment building. And I think they're out there. Um, but we now have different types of, of almost person specification. And I use that word very carefully because I don't like to put people in boxes. But there are people who, who don't want that. There are people who don't want to live in the three bedrooms. I mean, they don't want to cut the grass. They want to live in town, walking distance from where they're working. And all they want to, to do is, you know, the young guy or young girl, uh, they're going to sleep in that place. They're going to get up and go to work, and they're going to go socialise with their friends. And you know, they've they've no real interest in property per se. It's it's a it's a convenience to have it close to wherever, and you know, they disappear for the weekends. And uh, for those type of people, what they want in terms of a piece of property and a place to live is something completely different. And of course, their budget is wholly different as well. And so, the smaller in inverted commas apartments stroke living spaces for those people I think is totally adequate and you know I think we'll find that there's, um, uh, they'll become incredibly popular um, as, as time goes on uh, and they'll become much more affordable in the city centre and, and I think you're right about the transient population I, I don't expect a family to live in a 12 square metre or 14 square metre it's, it's not possible it's impossible it's, it's, it would be horrendous but for me from you know some of the rooms I lived in when I was a young kid in the city, going to college and and growing up, um, if I had one of these rooms back then, I would have been my God, you know, fantastic. Um, but we do need to go and control rents and stuff like that. I absolutely agree with that. Some of these things are, are becoming you know hugely expensive mm-hmm. to, to live in, and uh, we need to make sure that the entire population can live in those types of developments. That's for sure. That's that's a whole different goal bins, not my bailiwick. I, I, I build these things and we try to do, do some good stuff. But, you know, beyond that, the, the whole concept of student living, co-living, even the apart hotels, they're very much now about creating a social atmosphere for uh, a population that is not a permanent population. It's a kind of semi-permanent and sometimes uh, completely transient population. If, you, if you're building these things next to uh, one of the big, you know, international firms that all the kids work for and they don't even need to cook when they come home. It's all provided for in these big, big large companies. And they're, they're looking for that almost fun environment when they leave work that they have when they're at work. And it's it's completely different residential. And, and I understand why we're all reticent about it. We all, we're all trying to understand this. We're all trying to, this amazing word called co-living, what is it? You know, mm. and in fairness, most of the councils that, that we've been to, most of the, of the planning departments, have been out into Europe and looked at co-living and, and looked at those and 
I would say to you that certainly in Dublin City Council, most of the planners there know more about co-living than mm-hmm. probably a lot of the architects in town because they've purposely gone to look at it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, because yeah, on, on the show so far we've covered, we've actually had a co-living special uh, where we brought in some of the big operators, uh, but we've actually tended to cover, actually we've just happened to cover co-living several times over the last few months and it has been heavily criticised, but I for one actually am somebody who sees the benefits of it, but then I for the last decade or more would have been a proponent of the tiny house movement, the tiny home movement. You know, I, I think that we created these huge spaces that we didn't need and um, we weren't using some of the social spaces that are around us. Um, but I think one of the really important things to do, and because I always feel whenever we're having a conversation about co-living, you know, we need to keep it balanced. And that is you know, this is not going to appeal to everyone. It, you know, it's not designed to appeal to everybody. It's, it's probably to going to d- d- appeal to 1% of the population. And there are people who want the community, the low cost and the convenience. Mm-hmm. That's it. They're, so they're not looking to get into leases. So I think it's always really important that, you know, I, I don't like if there's a feeling that we're comparing, you know, apples with apples because we're not. It's a different yeah, offering. I think if you if you look at co-living, even all the co-living that's projected, I think you'll get nowhere near 1%. Nowhere near 1%. Not even 1%. Not yeah. even 1%. It, it has its place, but I think yeah. you're right. It's a very yeah. small sector yeah. of, mm-hmm. of yeah. the market. I think as well, I mean, as you're undoubtedly aware, there was a proposal, is a proposal for a co-living space in Dunleary with Barter Developments. And um, I must say I was not in favour of the application that they put in and the, the disparity between the number of units, that, for example, access to kitchens and things like that was appalls me on a, on a certain level but at the same time I think there was a dishonest appropriation of this issue by uh, certain political groups within the council mm-hmm. who absolutely misrepresented what was mm-hmm. involved mm-hmm. and absolutely put fear around this issue that was unjustified and unmerited um, because as you say there is a place for this and nobody's forced to go into it. I think the prices are pretty steep mind mm-hmm. you um, but that's that's a market force and either either they will be able to sustain that or they won't. Yeah now mm-hmm. that's an interesting mm-hmm. one actually because I believe there is a place for this but mm-hmm. likewise I would like to see it as a lower cost offering mm-hmm. but have a premium there if people want it but I think that it should be a lower cost model and obviously with a 20 year old daughter I think that something like this at a lower cost would be an ideal as an ideal It's interesting because I was speaking to a colleague on the council who lived in Chicago for a while in a co-living arrangement in Chicago and I just asked him how much it cost and it was it was I think $1300 but per semester he was in college that's half the year you know so the, the the price point compared to what they're talking about for the Barter Development in area I think is is 1300 euro a month per unit which is I think astronomical for what's involved but I'd be very interested to see if the if the market will bear that kind of level yeah. I'd be interested to see when new players come into the market if there's going to be a price range because I think like like with everything in a hotel in Dublin you can choose to stay somewhere mm. for 89 euros or you can choose to stay somewhere for 489 euros per night so I want to see when more operators come into the market are we going to have that range and I think that will just like the hotels you're talking about will reflect in the quality of the product that, that you're getting and, and, and absolutely you know I think we're, we're in we're in as I said a whole broad new world of, of, of the definition of residential and I think we're exploring that and I think Anything new is, is is expensive, and people, you know, I think that market market will stabilise, and uh, you know, things will come along. It's, it, you know, look what Ryanair's done for 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 aircraft, and and, and say for the better for the better of all of us. You know, we all travel much much more now because of 
Ryanair. Yeah. And that, 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 you know. and that has to be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, Although not, for, not for climate change. I was about to well, say... Well, we're on to a different story now. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, look, we're going to take a short break now. We'll be back to continue this conversation with Barry Ward, uh, Fine Gael Local Councillor of Dunleary Rathdown County Council and Arthur Bryan, Managing Director of C&W O'Brien. And one of the things we're going to be discussing after the break is this concept of nimbyism and... the the democratic right to get involved in the planning process so join us after the break everything's fine on 93.9 Dublin South FM will you look at them go I wish I had their energy ah they're good for the soul though aren't they I can't imagine life without Lucky (laughs) but he might outlive me yet oh well take my advice and sign up for a Dogs Trust Canine Care card It's completely free, and it's given me such peace of mind since I did. What's that? Well, it's simple, really. It means if you pass away before Lucky, Dogs Trust will take him in and give him the care and love he needs until they match him with the perfect forever home. That sounds terrific. How much did you say it costs? It doesn't cost a cent. Great. How do I sign up? Just text CARE to 50100, and they'll call you with more information. Or you can go to dogstrust.ie. Well, that's wonderful advice. I'll do that right away. Here, Lucky. Good boy. Whatever loan you're looking for, wedding loans, holiday loans, car or home improvement loans, make sure you talk to your local Capital Credit Union, where there are no hidden charges or early repayment penalties on your loan. Loans subject to approval. Terms and conditions apply. Capital Credit Union Limited. Regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Senior Line is a confidential telephone service for older people. Free phone 1800 80 45 91. We're open every day of the year from 10am till 10pm, including Christmas Day and New Year. So it's free phone 1800 80 45 91. We're there if you need someone to talk to and need someone to listen. We're older people too, so we will understand, and we're very good at listening. Did you get the senior line number? It's free phone 1800 80 45 91. Your community radio for South Dublin. This is Dublin South FM. Okay, welcome back to Property Matters here in Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. In studio now, uh, again, we're joined back again with Barry Ward, Fine Gael Local Councillor of Dunleary Rathdown County Council and Arthur O'Brien, Managing Director of C&W O'Brien Architects. And we were talking about the democratic process being in some way thwarted. You feel, Barry? I do, because I think... Well, I mean, my own view actually is that that there has been a centralisation of local authority powers generally and councillors now have been reduced really to being local ambassadors to the executive of the local authority to the de- and then on to the department, the relevant department, which I think renders the role of the councillor uh, to be bad value for taxpayers locally, even though councillors are working very, very hard. The local voter and taxpayer does not get the value for money that he or she should because councillors don't have the power to do what needs to be done very often. But the difficulty I have is when you centralise that power, when you take it away from local authorities and local communities by extension, you remove a democratic element of planning or other areas, which is really important. And part but is of, it is yeah. it being removed um, if because there's a public consultation element as part of developing the local area plan? Is that democracy being re- removed, or is it being, um, I suppose, is it being put to the public at a different stage? Well, I think it is being removed. I mean, you refer to local area plans, so 
as a as a council we have an overarching i suppose planning constitution if you want to call it that which is the county development plan or the city development plan in dublin city the county development plan is done every 5 to 6 years we start the process again next january or february i think and that is the basic set of parameters that are supposed to govern all planning applications in the county it deals with heights it deals with densities it deals with parkland zoning uh, it and in terms of building standards themselves it can come down to define specific elements within them and, and and, and objectives and goals for the local authority. The reality is now that with the with these strategic housing developments, they can, on board Planola, when they bypass the council, and Arthur has correctly said that they do have consultations with the council, but realistically the council planning, planners don't get, if they disagree with the developers, to stamp their mark on it the way they would in an ordinary planning process. When it gets to Onboard Planola, Onboard Planola can decide, well, I don't care that Dunia Down County Councillors have said that there shouldn't be buildings above five storeys in this area or that there shouldn't be above a certain density, whatever it is. They can overrule that. So we can talk about all the consultation we like about the process that goes into the development plan, which takes place over years, by the way, and involves hours and hours and hours of meetings of councillors and hours and hours and hours of, of officials' time in Dunia Down to collate responses and details and all that kind of thing. But ultimately, it's for naught if Onboard Planola can just ignore it. Now, they're, they're banned by the zoning aspect. Mm-hmm. So if we say that that is open space and that is residential development and that is industrial, whatever, they're banned by that. But they're not banned by things like uh, height strategies or densities or things like that. OK, but Barry, I'm going to take you back a few months earlier when our Minister for Housing spoke about the approach he's taken and has taken from when he was given the brief of um, development um, and sorry, uh, of planning. In fact, he said that he sought out this brief and he said that he sought it out because he was not happy with decisions that he and his fellow councillors took as uh, at the time of developing the local area or or the local city plan for Dublin back in 2011. So this was one of the things that he wanted to do. He felt that there had been an arbitrary approach taken to um, height height restrictions Mm. and even to densities in certain areas around the city. Yeah. Um, And I understand that. And Owen Murphy and I do not agree on this issue. Um, And we've had this discussion several times, although I have great respect for him. He's obviously also coming from Dublin City Council background as opposed to my background, which is Dunleary Rath Down. Should that matter? Well, it, I think, yes, it should, because ultimately Dublin City Council is dealing with a much denser area in terms of the population density than Dunirath Down. I mean, you have farms in Dunirath Down. There are no farms that I'm aware of anymore in Dublin City. I know that there was one until recently. There was a herd of dairy cows somewhere in Dublin City, but it's, they have been sold. But like you, you do actually have agricultural land, particularly in Stepaside and Kiltiernan and places like that in Dunirath Down. So it is different. We are a county council. They're a city council. But... Uh, I think what he was referring to was a frustration with um, certain politicians who essentially are given a representation by a local community that they will not have X, Y or Z in a certain area. And rather than challenging the basis for that decision or arguing it out or or taking a stance on an issue that they, they might really know is otherwise, the local politicians, because they're afraid of their electorate, will just go with something go with something that, that might not be objectively justifiable. No, absolutely. And in fact he used the term vested interest yeah. albeit them albeit well intended yes. vested interest. Yeah, and I think that's true. I mean and when you look we have any number of communities and residents and things like that who come to us and say, I'm very unhappy about this this proposal for my area and that is of course a legitimate concern. They are not doing so out of a pecuniary interest. They're doing so because they're concerned their area is going to change unrecognizably. Um I understand that that 
And I think there is a very important role for local councillors to engage with residents on that issue. And if they feel that they agree with the residents, um, the, then they should represent that view of the council and they should stand by it. But there, I know myself there are times when I've had to say to resident associations, look, I understand your concerns. However, I don't agree with you. And I don't think that's justifi- a justifiable concern. And there's any number of occasions where I have had to do that. It's uncomfortable because they're also the people you're seeking to represent on the council mm-hmm. and whose votes you'll be asking for in the next election. But I think it's an important thing. And it's something like from, I mean, as, a, as an elected representative, you must be true to your own beliefs when you, when you stand up in the council and take a particular view. And uh, in my experience where I have said that to local residents associations, I don't agree with you and I'm not going to support that. Ultimately, as far as I know, they have all worked out well um, and ultimately you will have the respect of people for having stood by the, mm-hmm. the, the principle rather than just going with the popular. You know, I am happy to hear you say that because actually one of the criticisms I have um, in terms of planning across the board uh, is that actually there shouldn't be political involvement whatsoever because the short term lifespan of, of um political appointees um, and that's just the reality you know it's a little bit like I will no longer read biographies from anybody who still needs somebody to fall in love with them to vote for them or to buy something from them that's my rule of thumb about bi- biographies and unfortunately politics falls into the same rule you know or, if you all, still, all, three or all three you know so um, so I'm actually really happy to hear you say that because actually it's quite refreshing I haven't heard mm. that too often mm. So, Arthur, in terms of developments that you're dealing with, I mean, you know, the views of the public, the reality is people don't like change. And I don't want to I don't want to brush that all uh, or paint it all kind of with the NIMBY Mm. brush because I don't think that's fair. But how how cognizant are developers of um, sensitivities for for local areas? I I think. Certainly, every, every, nobody wants to upset anybody. There's no question about that. Every, everybody wants to try and work with, with their neighbour and, and, and be a good neighbour. Um, uh, I, I don't think there's any uh, magic system, whether it's the SHD process, where the National Spatial Strategy, or the development plans that, that we, we see in every local authority. No, nothing is perfect. And, and you know sometimes we find ourselves cherry-picking our way through. There are times when we'll play the National Development Plan, or we play the SHD card, and there's times we'll revert back to the local development plan. And you know, we, we have an instance we've we've launched um, in in the last couple of weeks um, a new residential development in in Tullamore, probably the first one that's been built for ten or fifteen years. We chose to go directly to the local authority there because we knew we would get a lower density, which is the product that the local people wanted to have and, and live in, which are the, the houses that the long term living. You know, fine sizes, great uh, space and rooms and storage. We couldn't get that under the national uh, spatial strategy. We couldn't get it if we went to the board. And our, our biggest fear is that we would be taken to the board and they would insist on a higher density, which which was was not the product for the area. You know, nothing's perfect. It's no question. But I I think there is a democratic process there, and and I think you know there's a time and 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 as I've said before that to participate in that process, development plan, local area plans. They're highly politicised and in in a good way because your local representatives are, are inputting into that, and um, and that's no bad thing. Uh, but I, I, sometimes I think, you know, we need to have a big brother watching over because sometimes things can get too local. And I think in in Dublin City Council, where especially on heights and mm-hmm. densities and stuff, it's become a little bit too local. And uh, we need to, you know, I can go to Cork and build twenty five stories. You know, you can see the refusals along the docks recently oh. for much, much less than that. 
Okay, as you're bringing Cork into this, this is a good time to wrap up because I think that that's a whole <laughs> other conversation. <laughs> that's a whole other conversation for another day. And remember, remember, all politics is local. So look, that was Barry Ward, Fianna Gael local councillor of Dunleary, Rathdown County Council. Arthur O'Brien, managing director of CNW O'Brien Architects. Thank you both for joining us. Um, that's it from us in studio today. And thank you to all of our guests. We urge people to get in touch on hello at iProperty Radio or. Uh, hello at iProperty Radio or Twitter at iProperty Radio and again I just want to thank everybody for being with us here today and also thanks to Danny Hickey on sound we're back at the same time next week from myself Carl Talon have a great week 